Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate if their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Amen. Amen. That's a, that's a tough reading, isn't it? Listen, I'm going to ask you today to go to some hard places with me. I'm going to ask you not to quit or to give up or check out, but to hang in there. I think we'll all be the better for it. We're looking today at really what's the high, what is the high point and low point of human history both at once. It's the murder of Jesus Christ in the account of the gospel writer John. And as Jesus here is dying, as he is, as Christians have always said, as he's taking the sin and evil of the world into and onto his body, as he's doing that, he's also at the same time, I hope we'll see, he's also in a way giving birth to something totally new, a new way of living, a new way of seeing everything. And so today I want to look specifically at how he does that through... His words from the cross, Jesus here, he gives three words, there's three statements that he makes in John's account as he's hanging, dying on the cross. And these three statements give us, I believe, the solutions 
to three very modern dilemmas that we all face, things we wrestle with day in, day out. And so that's what I want to look at today, how Jesus' words from the cross said a long time ago, speak to us right here, right now, today. So let's look at these three words, how his words on the cross speak to number one, our relational dilemma. There's something outside ourselves we wrestle with. Number two, our personal dilemma. There's something inside ourselves we wrestle with. And finally, our universal dilemma. There's something with life itself we wrestle through, wrestle with. And Jesus speaks to that as well. Here we go. Let's look at each of these in turn. Number one, here we go. Let's look at this relational dilemma. Let me set this up by looking at at verse 25. We'll start there. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, his aunt, uh, Mary, the wife. Some of you say aunt. Sorry, you can tell betray sort of my cultural background. Anyway, uh, Mary, the uh, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved, that's John being a bit humble there, uh, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, you have to catch this picture. Uh, Here's Jesus. He's on the cross, the literal weight and sin of the world on his shoulders. And what's he doing? Well, on one hand, and this isn't supposed to be a joke, Jesus is calling his mom. He's calling his mom. He's thinking about her. He's thinking about his mother. Why? Well, as the eldest son in a Jewish family, it would have been his responsibility to care for her, now a widow, even to the end. Now he's dying. He's doing something with and about that responsibility. And yet, you'll notice that uh, he's like, well, why why wasn't there somebody else? Where were his brothers? Well, his literal blood brothers weren't there. They'd all rejected Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of John, they had tried to goad him into being prematurely arrested and killed. So in one sense, right here in this moment, he's being, yes, the perfect son, the perfect family member all the way to the end, which, by the way, is quite a challenge to many of us modern, individualistic Western people for whom our lives and career are idols. I mean, we don't have time to take care of our family, take care of our parents. Here's Jesus doing this. And yet this is also a challenge to us, those of us who are from more collectivist cultures, where the family is everything, where the family is an idol, because what's Jesus doing here? Oh, you got to see this. In a very real way, Jesus is redefining family. He's redefining what family is. What does he say to his mother? He sees John, again, the unnamed disciple, standing next to his mother, and he says, here it is, woman, here's your son, verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, behold, look, your mother. And from an hour, the disciple took, him, took her to his home. Now, in this one sweeping act, this one statement, Jesus here, through these words, he points to the solution for the underlying relational dilemma every human being faces in all our relationships, which is this. How are we going to get along together? (laughs) Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, some of you came in today wondering that very question. All right. You ask, how can a family stay together? How can two people keep walking together? How can you, maybe today, even let go of some of the terrible, awful things that people have done to you, said about you? How are you going to make it with that person? How are you going to make it with that group? And how are we, as the people of Mosaic, going to make it together in a culture which puts so much pressure on us to go our separate ways, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Puts so much pressure on us just to retreat 
in our enclaves of individualistic, thin-sliced, me-oriented, homogenous spaces of unlimited self-expression. There it was. Enclave, I'll say it again. Some of you are like, what did he say? I'm going to say it again. Enclaves of individualistic, thin-sliced, me-oriented, homogenous spaces of unlimited self-expression. Basically, where everybody is just like me. How do we stay together? Look at the picture. You've got John, right? John, this younger, single, male businessman running his father's business, the fishing business. And you've got Mary, an older, widowed, poor woman from two different ends of the power spectrum, two different ends of the financial world. And Jesus, in one one moment, collapses the distance between them and says, now you're family. Now you're family. He's redefining what family in the kingdom of God looks like. It's not based on class. It's not even based now, hear me, on your own choice. Your own choice. He's choosing it for you. He's choosing who his family is, what his family looks like. He's saying, you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deal with radically different people than you and come together and follow me. And in that moment, let's ask now, well, what's going to hold them together? What could possibly hold these kind of people together? Well, here it is. What's going to hold them together and hold us together today is this. It is not just the cross of Jesus, which it is, but specifically what the cross of Jesus Christ means. And what does the cross of Christ mean? I think you know this. This is one word here. The word forgiveness. That's what it means. Luke 23. Remember over in in Luke's gospel, Jesus prays on the cross. Father, what? Not retaliate, not abandon them, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The disciples earlier in Luke, uh, they asked Jesus, is it Jesus, help us, help us learn how to pray. Nice request, right? Wrong. <laughs> Jesus, help us to connect with God. Help us to get like some spiritual kind of vibes with God. Jesus said, all right, all right, all right. Here's what you pray. You want to follow me? You want to be a Christian? Here's how you pray. You say, Father, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. Now, by the way, that was a trick prayer Jesus pulled on you. Because he didn't just say, God, pray. He didn't say, okay, God, just would you forgive me? We like praying. That feels pretty good. We get our guilt gone and we feel better. He says, this is how a Christian prays. God, would you please forgive me to the degree as I forgive those around me? In other words, the corollary is this. If you're a Christian, you'll pray, God, don't forgive me unless and until I forgive others. That's the Lord's Prayer. In this moment, the middle of redefining family, Jesus is going right back to the well. He's saying forgiveness is what holds us all together. Now, at this point, you're like, oh, my gosh. All kind of stuff running through your mind. Maybe about the person sitting next to you today. That's why we're here. John said it. We're not playing church. I'm asking you to go to some hard places today with me. Okay? All kind of stuff's running through your minds. Objections. What about this? What about that? What about that person? Listen, I've heard it all. I've probably read it all. I've probably thought it all. Let me just say this. Christian forgiveness is not being a doormat. Christian forgiveness is not allowing abuse to continue in some twisted form of martyrdom. It's never, a lo- it's never loving to allow wrong to continue once you know it's there. Like, I, I would never allow someone to continue to uh, abuse my wife or children once I became aware of it. I would do everything in my power to stop it. I would not allow the abuse or injustice to continue and then let somebody quote me something about forgiveness. 
Wouldn't do it. I would stop that in the name of love because what's most loving is to stop abuse, to stop injustice. And yet, once that's done, you've got to deal with what's happened to you. You've got to deal with the hurt. You've got to deal with the pain. You've got to deal with the feelings. What are you going to do about it? Now the hard work of Christian forgiveness begins. Letting go to the degree and in the same way you desire God to forgive your debts. You gotta, it's hard work, isn't it, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's why John Perkins, some of you know that name, the great civil rights activist, he said this. He said, love is the final fight. After everything's been said, everything's been done to you, Love is the final fight. Why does he call it that? It's because, it's because once evil's been done to you, wrong's done to you, what, is it, what happens? You want to do that evil right back. You want to get back at him. The Bible acknowledges this. Read Proverbs 24. It says, don't say to the one who's hurt you, I'll do to them what's been done to me. Why? You know that. Why? Because when evil's done to you, it releases a kind of power in your life. You want to get back at them in the same way. You're trying to get back. You're trying to hurt them. Why? Because you've been hurt. You want to payment because they owe you a debt but God forgive my debts against you in the same way to the degree I forgive others debts toward me so when you and I when we start thinking about what church means we start thinking about what family means we start thinking about walking together especially in people like John's case Mary's case male and female have and have not up and down at the top and bottom when we start thinking about walking together Come on, as a whole new kind of family, a whole new kind of community, which is what Jesus Christ calls us, what's going to keep us together? It's the same thing that's going to hold John and Mary together. It's forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you see the picture? Come on, you've got to see this. It's John on one side, Mary on the other. Maybe you here, them there, that person here, other person there, and the cross of Jesus Christ between you. Literal forgiveness hanging between them, appealing to them, calling out to them, compelling them. Look, when Jesus looks at John and when he looks at Mary and he says, your family, he's doing that at the same time. He's forgiving them. He's paying the price for their debts against him. He's covering his own mother's shame, his own mother's crimes, sins against him on the cross. He's giving us, humanity, the key to our relational dilemma. How do we walk together without it crushing us along the way? We do it by remembering, like I believe John and Mary remember from that moment on, where we stand before Jesus. You look to the left, you look to the right. We're all there together. All there together. The same Lord dies forgiving us all. The ground, come on, foot of the cross, level. Yeah, some of you may have seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, good movie. We, we see the story in Saving Mr. Banks how uh, Walt Disney you may know that name. Walt Disney tried for 20 years, 20 years, to obtain the movie rights to make Mary Poppins from an author named P.L. Travers. She's the author of the Mary Poppins series. And we find that Mrs. Travers, as she insists being called in the movie, is a difficult English woman. Mrs. Travers fusses over every detail of the script. No cartoons, she says. No made-up words like super califragilistic. Expialidocious. She is impossible to deal with. At this crucial moment, she halts the making of the movie over creative differences. She walks out and flies back to England. 
ending Disney's 20-year dream. But we discover that Mrs. Travers is not whom she appears to be. She's not really English. She's Australian, grew up in, a, in Australia. She's not really tough and bossy. Mrs. Travers is actually fragile, vulnerable. Her name isn't even P.L. Travers. It's really Helen Goff. She changed her name when she adopted the name of her dead father, Travers Goff. He was a banker after whom she named the father figure in her stories, Mr. Banks, the banker. Travers Goff, her real father, was an alcoholic, a falling down, drunk, irresponsible, unemployable bum. Some of you had that for a father. But Helen adored him. He drank himself to death and broke her heart. Little Helen, you see in flashbacks, she's whimsical, spontaneous. Grown-up Helen's hard. Little Helen's willing to overlook anything, forgive her father everything. But grown-up Helen overlooks nothing, forgives nothing. We come to realize she made Mary Poppins, the character, to try to redeem her father. But in the book, she can't even bring herself to do it. Uh, When Tom Hanks, who plays Walt Disney, when he finds the truth about her, he boards a plane, he follows her back to England, he knocks on her door, middle of the night. And tries to win her back, and here's how he does it. He does it by explaining to her he knows what it's like to love and forgive his own abusive father. And then he says to her, quote, Now we all have our sad stories, Mrs. Travers. Don't you want to let it all go? Have a life that isn't dictated by the past? Forgiveness, Mrs. Travers. It's what I learned from your books. Give her to me, Mrs. Travers. Trust me with your precious Mary Poppins. I won't disappoint you. I swear... Every time someone walks into a movie house from London to Kansas City, they will see George Banks being saved. They will love him and his kids. They will weep for his cares. They will wring their hands when he loses his job. And when he flies that kite, Mrs. Travers, they will rejoice. They will sing George Banks and all he stands for, look at this, will be redeemed. George Banks will be saved. Maybe not in life. But in imagination. This is what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again. What's he saying? He's saying if you'll forgive your father, P.L. Travers, Helen Goff, all your stories can have a happy ending. Have a happy ending. And I want to tell you, in the gospel, I believe that. That's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for this church. It's true. He said, Morgan, all right, I like to do that. I'm a bit provoked. You didn't warn me, but I'm feeling it still. Okay, I like to bring maybe some of that into my life, but I'm stuck. How do I begin to do that? How do I begin to forgive? How do I begin to change? Okay, here we go. Jesus' next words on the cross speak right to that. Number two, they speak to our personal dilemma within our relational dilemma. That We've got a personal dilemma, a choice to make, and it's this. How does a person... Might as well personalize it. How do I rightly change without becoming a doormat on one hand or a dictator on the other? How do I do that? Well, let's see. Look at this verse. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, John here, he's giving you this tremendous clue as to what's happening right here in these words. He tells you that Jesus says, I thirst. But John takes pains to show you. Jesus is not saying this because he's thirsty. Weird, right? He's not saying it because he just wants something to drink. No. Why does Jesus say these words? He tells you why. To fulfill the scripture. What was that? Jesus here on the cross, he's paraphrasing Psalm 22. 
It was about a public execution that David, the psalm writer, says that he went through, except it was a mystery because how could David go through an execution, a crucifixion? It hadn't even begun yet. It hadn't even been invented yet. It was a mystery for centuries until this. Jesus is paraphrasing Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's saying, I thirst. And just so you won't miss it, John, again, you may remember this from the reading, Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. John quotes Psalm 34, 20. Not one of his bones will be broken. Then Zechariah 12, 10. They'll look on him who they have pierced. What's John showing us? Come on. At length, what Jesus' words here, I thirst point to, which is this. The gospel-centered way for personal change and growth. Gospel-centered way for personal change and growth. Follow me. What do I mean? I mean this. Generally, over the centuries, most cultures have had one of two ways of trying to uh, relate to change, of trying to get you to grow, of pushing you to become different or, or whatever. Because the reasons is every, every culture knows you got to deal, here it is, with the self, right? You're born in the world. One day you grow up, you figure out, i got a self. How, this, how am I going to respond to change? How am I going to respond to the news? How am I going to respond to that election or that person or whatever? How am I going to do that? What kind of person am I going to be in the face of all that I face. Hmm? Now the older, more ancient ways, or the Greek way is this. I'll put it like this. It's called self-reduction through willpower. Self-reduction through willpower. The ancients basically said, you got to think, and you got to think, and you got to reason about the best way to live, and then work to become that. Work your hardest to become your best morally. Now the upside is this. There's this standard above you right? You, you don't just make it up as you go. You got to stand it outside the self. But the downside is that's really cold, isn't it? That's really remote. And people who do that can in the end become judgmental and look down on those who don't have what it takes to live up to whatever standard there is, right? Now, the other more modern way is this. Some of you are like, man, I don't even get that. That's right, because we live in our modern day, which is not self-reduction through willpower, but it's self-expression through emotion power. Come on, YOLO. You do you, I do me. That's self-expression. By the way, you don't only live once. You actually live twice. That's a different sermon anyway. All right. Today, in response to whatever we face, we don't like self-reduction. Becoming less, conforming. No, we want self-expression. But the irony of both these approaches, as different as they look, they're all the same under the hood. They feel the same. They look the same. They are the same in the end. Let me show you what I mean. There's a man by the name of Mike Freeman. He's a sports reporter. Some of you, I got you back now. Sports reporter for the Bleacher Report. And he's a science fiction writer on the side. So I like him already. Sports plus sci-fi, you know. Anyway, in his column this past week, he shared something profound, which is really profound, especially for like a sports column about, you know, which coaches should be fired or whatever. Anyway, in his column, he wrote, he was telling this story, how one night in front of his TV, he just fires off this tweet about the five best wide receivers in the NFL. Hang with me here if you're not a sports fan. All right. Five best wide receivers just to generate some conversation. But he says, I've noticed this growing trend in response to anything I ever tweet or post anymore. Not just disagreement. Not even like a good spirited argument. He says, it's hate. I get back hate. He said, within minutes, lasting for days, thousands of angry fans... Then fan bases, then fan bases of like the colleges, of the players that got left off his list. 
attacking him online. And he said this, he wrote this in his column. He said, two days later, angry tweets were still pouring in. What puzzles me is this, why did this list anger so many? Some of it's just passion for sure, but I can't help wonder if some of it's because of the tone of discourse in the country now. Fueled in part by social media's love of strong opinions and our increasingly tribal politics, sports discussions seem to boil down to if you don't support my guy, you aren't just wrong, you're a blithering idiot who needs to be destroyed. He said one guy got so mad over the list that he tweeted he was going to give my science fiction short story a one-star review on Amazon. I thought that he was joking. He wasn't. Minutes after he tweeted me, the one-star review appeared. He said what sort of bothered me was my story is at least two stars. He says, okay, one and a half. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to what unlimited self-expression does to us culturally. It brings us to a dead end. Unable to relate to one another. Unable to love, stay together. So what's the net result of our modern approach? It's the same, he shows you, as the old approach. It's the same, it's judgmentalism. Putting others down, tribalism and hate. Because self-reduction, the old approach says, there is this impersonal law I've got to live up to, a truth to be fulfilled. But self-expression says, forget truth, I do what I want to do. But both of those are dead end. Dead ends. Because they're both self centered forms of change and because they both spring from the same seed the self they both produce the same flower up top which is why each side liberals conservatives can be just as mean-spirited as the other but gospel-centered change is right here you've got to catch this jesus knowing that all was now what finished said to fulfill the scripture so you won't miss it i thirst. So when John says this over and over and over to fulfill the scriptures, that the scriptures may be fulfilled, he's not only showing you what the Bible's about, he's showing you how to grow and change. He's showing you that the Bible's about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who fulfills it all, does it all. He says it over and over so you won't miss it, but we still do because we still think it's about us and what we want. He says Jesus fulfilled the scripture. Why? Because you didn't. (laughs) because you anybody here fulfill the law of god nope me neither how about that we're all in it together right not about us and now if you'll see that you got your basis for change gospel center change is the result of bringing into your life a stunning blend of humility and courage humility and courage it begins with the humility to say god i see you're calling me to forgive to change and grow, but I cannot do that on my own. I need grace, the grace of God. And yet it demands courage because you say, God, I see you're calling me into hard places. The gospel demands I change. It demands I grow. It demands I forgive like you did, Jesus. And therefore to grow, to have the character necessary to meet the demands of life and not be a judgmental conservative person who looks down on those who can't live up to the moral standard and to not be a judgmental liberal person who looks down on everybody who's just trying to get in your way, their way. We need to see that Jesus did what we could not. He met the demands of an all-loving God. He has covered the shame that you feel from maybe not living up to your parents' standard not living up to your family's or culture standard and he forgives you of the guilt you feel of all the misdeeds that you've done and so when you see him saying to fulfill the scripture to bring the law and heart of god to life i thirst 
Now you can change because you know, you see, you're totally loved even while you're a total mess. You're totally loved even while you're a total mess. Do you want to change? You want to grow rightly today? I hope you'd say yes. You've got to see a Savior who went in your place and now calls you to courageously follow him into hard places you may not have gone to on your own. It's a stunning blend, courage, humility, which brings us now to number three. What are we going to do with all of this? Man, how are we going to walk out? We've got, we got a universal dilemma to face and approach. Thankfully, Jesus' words give us the answer. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said three words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what's he, what's he talking about? I mean, what, what's finished? Well, on one hand, first and foremost, before I tell you the dilemma, first and foremost, Jesus is speaking to his work, to the, uh, the, the ending of the separation between God and people. And over in Matthew's gospel, you get, an, you get an object lesson. Matthew says, listen, there's this big curtain in the temple. It was torn in half supernaturally, like a sign to show you the presence of God is leaking back in the world, coming back in the world, just like it did back in the garden in Genesis 3. But there's some Something else on a cosmic scale happening here. Because what else does Jesus mean when he says it's finished? Well, the root of what he says in Greek, the root word is the word telos, which means design, uh, which means purpose, the telos. He's saying it is designed, it is purposed. Telos is the aim of something, the big idea of something. He's saying, listen, the purpose of everything I'm redesigning. The purpose is finished. The design is finished. The purpose of everything is being restarted. He, Jesus is saying there's a relaunching right here, right now of history. Like you, like you restart your computer. Come on, some of you know that trick, right? It's the only trick I know and I've got. Jamie Smith and our media team knows that. When it's, my computer's not running right, I did, he, you hit restart. The thing temporarily shuts down. It goes dark. Jesus hung in the dark for hours. There was silence. There's silence when you restart your computer. Then you listen for it and you hear What? A ding, right? Um, the lights start coming back on. Things start running like they're supposed to. And in a way, that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus is restarting the universe. He's debugging it. He's overriding the software programming of the universe, which before, up till now, has always been death since the garden. Death and evil since the garden. Always darkness since the garden. And now he's giving it a new moral arc, right? Which is why Dr. King, come on, you know his words. He could say with confidence, listen, there's a moral arc to the universe. Oh, it may be long, but it bends towards justice. It bends towards rightness. It's a way of saying now things bend toward God. All things should. Why? Because it is finished. It's redesigned. And here's what this speaks to. This speaks to now our universal dilemma. You feel, and if you haven't felt this yet, it just means you haven't lived long enough. Because you live long enough, you will ask yourself this question. And here it is. Is it all worth it? And you can put an adjective, is it all blankety blank worth it? Is it all worth it? Is all of this worth it? All the hard work of forgiveness I got to do again. All the stuff I put up with in life. Is it worth it? Growing and changing, is it worth it? Is it all worth it? Listen, when Jesus says, it is finished, there's a new telos, design. He's saying, yes, it is worth it. And he's going to show you why. Because what was the very first thing that happened in this new redesigned universe? first thing that happened death you're like okay huh 
wasn't what I was expecting. What is this telling you? It's telling you now. The thing you least thought could be redesigned, death is being repurposed. Suffering and pain are about to be repurposed. They're not an end anymore. They're a beginning to greatness. See, so many times we look at it a senseless situation, a senseless relationship, a senseless marriage perhaps, and we think, why? Why am I going through this? I did not choose this. I did not deserve this. They don't deserve this. Why is my child going through this? Why is our nation going through this? And the answer is, on the short answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. You're not God, right? But on the other hand, it's because you don't know and I don't know. doesn't mean that God doesn't know, that there's not a reason. And so when Jesus says here, the design is done, when the, the telos is finished, look at what he doesn't do. He does not get off the cross and live. He dies, which makes no sense at all in a redesigned, repurposed world, supposedly, right? Just like your suffering doesn't make sense, your dead end doesn't make sense, what happened to you makes no sense. So what was he doing? Come on. What he was doing was proving to you that everything is redesigned. He's about to prove to you that your suffering is worth it, that your pain isn't forgotten, that you've got a future and a hope for no matter what people do or don't do for you. He's proving to you that even death is redesigned. And sorry to quote Bruno Mars here. He's saying, don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. And as he plunged headfirst, come on, over the abyss with no bungee cord, no parachute, no plan B, he's saying, don't believe me, just watch. And his father God snatched him from the grave, snatched him from eternal separation. Was his suffering worth it? Listen, just ask him. Just ask him. Isaiah says the Messiah will look on the results of his suffering and be satisfied. Be satisfied because he's looking now at you. He's looking now at me. And this is why you can love him. This is why you can trust him. And this is why I believe for you today and your family and your impossible situation and for us as a church, the best is yet to come. This is why I believe this. I give my life for it. I will give my life for it. And I want to tell you today, one day that if you are in Jesus you'll feel the same way. You're going to feel the same way. You'll look on the results of your suffering and be satisfied because it all got repurposed. God had a purpose all along. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. Don't quit. Don't give up. Your favorite <clears throat> Russian author in mind, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's <laughs> a genius, actually, and a Christian. In his day, nations suffering, people dying, poor, rich, separated. He asked why. Why does this happen? And then he looked at the cross of Jesus, and he said this. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. He just insulted us, by the way, right there. He said, in the the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they have shed. That will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. What's he saying? He's saying that the cross of Jesus will make it all worth it. What are you going through today? What are you handling? What difficult place is God tugging at your heart to step into? Come on. 
This is where we begin to be disciples. We begin to follow him, right? He says, follow me, and I'll make you into something greater than you've ever been before. He says, I stand at the end of history. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is for us today.